You're listening to Pluck and Grit, a podcast about the University of Alabama over the past 50 years. I'm Mary Lieb. And I'm Joey Weed. I was drawn to the challenge of being great there. So it's all these sort of competing, sometimes complementary visions that end up in a kind of messy world, you know, becoming a major university. I remember it being like probably the best time of my life. I don't have a golden book to give to anyone, but I can give you some pages out of the book. The quadrangle, what's considered holy ground, that was the center of the universe. It's those aha moments from somebody who's outside of our race, outside of our culture, to tell us this reality from their world. So that was really good time to be a student at the university. Because this is Alabama, we wanted it to be memorable and great. Hello. Hey. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to our very first podcast in this series. To give you a little background, we're both graduate students here at the Capstone. We're interested in understanding the people, the places, and the stories that have shaped the university over the years. So each episode will focus on one area of our university and interview people in order to capture their thoughts and individual experiences. So this means anything and everything from the establishment of the Ferguson Student Center to Big Al in this episode and to local Tuscaloosa stables. The past 50 years of the Capstone have had such a rich history, so we talked to the people who shaped our campus since the mid-1960s. And our first topic is... The birth of Big Al. So we wanted him to be kind of classy and mysterious. Um, We made sure, again, that he walked with not a cocky walk, but kind of a confident walk, because after all, this is Alabama, right? We started by asking the question, how did Big Al get his name? The story took us to decades-old Crimson Whites. And we learned about a boy and his elephant. Starting in the late 1920s. It's reported that the Rosenberg's Birmingham Trunk Factory gave Alabama football players good luck charms in the shape of elephants as the team left on a train to the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. Additionally, in 1930, a reporter from the Atlanta Times described Alabama's victory over Ole Miss that year with a simple phrase, Hold your horses, the elephants are coming! With the size of our football players and the obvious red jerseys, it was only a matter of time before the red elephants stuck into Alabama vernacular. So over the next few decades, live elephants would be brought to homecoming and football events. But that trend kind of became too costly and too difficult to manage. Like, where do you get an elephant in Alabama? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. And in fact, in the 1960s, Melford Espy Jr., an undergraduate student at the time, would wear a pajama suit and a giant red elephant mask to football games. He was called the Red Elephant at the time. Espy would go on to have a long administrative career in student affairs here at the university, but his career as the Red Elephant ended in the 1960s for one main reason. Coach Bryant wasn't on board. Here's Dr. Kathleen Kramer describing what the coach originally thought about the mascot proposition. In the late 1970s, she was the cheerleading advisor and worked closely with the students. Keep her in mind because she'll be important later on in this story. Coach Bryant and Mr. Tatum, who was head of the ticket office, said, you know, the elephant doesn't really suit us. The elephant is slow and it's cumbersome. It doesn't intimidate opponents. We kind of don't really want that to be played up. And so we didn't for years until we figured out that Coach Bryant really loved the students and would do anything to keep them happy. 
And this is really where our story begins. It's the summer of 1979. Donna Summer's Hot Stuff is the number one song in America right now. Jimmy Carter is president, and David Matthews is president of the University of Alabama. And Coach Bear Bryant is both the head coach and the athletic director at the University of Alabama. While all of this is happening, Anne Hedick Paramore had just been selected as homecoming chairman. She had ambitious goals, and she was going to need some help. I was appointed to be homecoming chairman, and so I was uh, given an advisor. Her name was Sigal Friedman. And I worked closely with Sigal. We started working on homecoming in June of 79. Sigal Friedman worked in the alumni office at the time. And as Anne and her advisor Sigal began planning, they worked closely with another key member of their team, homecoming publicity chairman and SGA senator Craig Cantrell. Here's Sigal describing that process. Craig and I were real good friends. He was very good friends with Anne. And then we would sit around and we'd talk about what we're going to do for homecoming. What's going to be the slogan? And it was through these discussions that they found the need to have a mascot. I noticed that and had heard that Auburn and some of the other schools in the Southeastern Conference had um, gotten mascots in the last year or so. And I asked her, how come we didn't have a mascot? And she said, I don't know. And I said, well, let's go find out. It's true. At the time, Alabama was one of the last major SEC schools without a mascot. Auburn's Tiger mascot, Aubie, made its live debut just a few months earlier in the February of 1979. Elephants and mascots, and we were just coming into that era. And so we weren't sure how it was going to work out. I really believe that because other Southeastern Conference schools all had mascots, that was one of the guiding desires. We felt like the three of us could form a pretty good, powerful talking and convincing, begging and pleading. (laughs) And so from there, they got administration support from the ground up, starting in the Office of Student Affairs. They talked to Mel Espy. Mel was working with the students. Mm -hmm. And after we got so far into it, he had a lot of input to it. He was the one that started up the the ladder. Was Dr. Blackburn knew about it. Now, Dr. Blackburn helped to get the president's Okay. The three of them getting the administration's approval was great, but if you remember the biggest roadblock from earlier in the story, there was still one person's approval they needed. What would Coach Bear Bryant think about all of this? Here's Anne describing that process. And so I said, um, let's go. So we made the appointment and we went to see Coach Bryant. We went in there and I explained to him that I was homecoming chairman and Sigal was my advisor. And um, we wanted to know why Alabama didn't have a mascot. And Coach Bryant said, oh, we don't need a mascot. And I said, oh, yes, sir, we do need a mascot. All the other schools in the Southeastern Conference have a mascot, and I think we need a mascot. And he said, we don't need a mascot. And I said, yes, sir, we do need a mascot. We need something that's going to help cheer on the team and Get the the crowds excited, the fans excited. And he said, well, what kind of mascot would we have? So Ann and Segale are sitting in Coach Bear Bryant's office. They're standing up to one of college football's most intimidating coaches. And they'd gotten the resistance they feared. But it was at this point when a lot of students might have walked out in defeat or been afraid and just said yes, sir, and left. Ann 
did something brave. She acknowledged the elephant in the room. I said, well, I'll look around your office and you got elephants everywhere. And I think that we ought to have a mascot that's an elephant. Oh, I don't want a mascot, an elephant on my field. And I said, he's not going to be on your field. He's going to be over there with the cheerleaders. And so he said, uh, well, you can have your mascot, but you keep him off my football field. And I said, yes, sir. Thank you so much. So now with Coach Brian on their side, everyone seemed to be on board. This was the approval the students needed for the mascot to go forward. When asked if Ann was scared to argue with Coach Brian in his office, here's what she said now about the experience. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. A lot of my friends have asked me through the years, weren't you afraid? And I said, you know, he was just a regular person, and I really didn't think about it while I was doing it. It wasn't until after the fact that people would say, weren't you scared? No, I wasn't scared. I just went in there to take care of something I wanted, and I wanted it for my university. At this point, there's a big transition of power in this story. Anne and Segale begin focusing on their week-long of homecoming activities, and they delegate the mascot duties to Craig Cantrell. As homecoming chairman, and because I had expanded homecoming from Thursday to Sunday, and I changed it to Sunday to Saturday or Sunday, I asked Craig, who was my publicity chairman for homecoming, would he please um, take over as the one to um, take care of this? And now is where we focus on our fourth main character in the story. While Anne, Segale, and Craig were celebrating, Dr. Kathleen Kramer, who we mentioned earlier as the cheerleading advisor, got a call from the coach himself. He called me and he said, Kathleen, let them have the mascot, but keep that elephant off of my field. And I said, yes, sir. Thank you all for listening right now. We're going to interrupt the story really quick to let Anne describe some of the homecoming stuff that happened in 1979. I don't know if you know what our theme was. It was rather cute. Okay, so it was homecoming is as American as football, hot dogs, apple pie in Alabama. And on the sticker, it's really funny. It has... Um, a football person with legs, uh, a hot dog with legs, and an apple pie with legs and a face. <laughs> it's a hoot. And now, back, back to, to the story. story. It's the fall of 1979. The students have approval from Coach Brian and support from a few other administrators. But there are a lot of details that go into a mascot reveal. What was this elephant mascot going to look like? How would it walk? Would it even talk? Who was going to pay for it? A lot of unanswered questions that followed this June meeting with Bear Bryant. And while Anne and Segale focused on homecoming, these unanswered questions were going to have to be answered by Kathleen Kramer and Craig Cantrell. Now, unfortunately, Craig passed away a few years ago, so we weren't able to record his experiences. Most of the commentary you're going to hear is from Kathleen Kramer about the two of them working hand in hand. When it came to developing the elephant mascot's look, now remember he didn't have a name at this point, they walked down to the soup store, grabbed a logo, an elephant leaning against a block A, and sent it to perhaps the most experienced character developers in the business, Walt Disney. So we took that and we mailed it to Walt Disney Studios. 
and they came back with some drawings, and um, to our disappointment, they looked a lot like Dumbo. And we just said, no, we've got to really talk about this with the students. We don't want it to be so endearing that it's not athletic, and yet we don't want it to be a frightening elephant that scares the children. We want it to have class. I know that sounds silly, but we did. We wanted him to have a confident gait and a cool-looking outfit. So for the, um, we worked with Disney for a while, and for the design we developed, he had an um, attractive head with big eyes that wouldn't scare the children, but then a block sweater, a red old-timey varsity sweater with a big block A on it to where he looked like a real fan who had just been working out. <laughs> and so we were excited that they got it right in the, in the second or third drawing. And then the United Spirit Association in San Francisco, California, took the designs and transformed them into a costume. But beyond the costume, there were certain qualities that Dr. Kramer and this mascot team believed in. Right, we brainstormed that. We felt very strongly he should never talk, Mm -hmm. because if he had a voice, um, that would vary as students came and went. And also we wanted him to be kind of classy and mysterious. Um, We made sure, again, that he walked with not a cocky walk, but kind of a confident walk, because after all, this is Alabama, right? We didn't want him to look um, frightening. We wanted him to be approachable and not too cartoon-like. Not um, Back then, there were some mascots who were almost too animated to where it was kind of annoying, like a stuffed animal. So we worked hard to make him um, be approachable, confident, and um, also have a spirit of fun. At this point in the story, it's the fall of 1979, and excitement is brewing for this mascot. The costume is designed, but as a lot of us are probably familiar with, the question still remained. Who was going to pay for this? Athletics was a little hesitant to invest in it because it was a student-driven initiative, but the students took responsibility. In early October of 1979, the SGA Senate passed a bill that allocated money for a school mascot, and made crimson and white the school's official colors. Yeah, why that didn't happen earlier, we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) To make the mascot a reality, the crimson white school paper reports that it was going to cost $2,300, or roughly $8,000 in 2017. The SJ allocation, along with alumni contributions, was able to fund half of that cost, and the other half came from an unsuspecting source. Gary Limroth, who's the owner and manager, Zap Photography in Tuscaloosa took on that burden. He has a real heart for the students as well and wanted to do this because he knew that it was something the students would like to see. So we were very grateful for Zap's um, patronage. So at last, all the details are in place. Except for one. Who's going to fill these elephant shoes? So... In part one, we heard about Anne and Sigail getting the approval for a mascot. And in part two, Craig and Kathleen turn this mascot into a reality. But now in order to properly introduce our fifth and final character of the story, we're going to rewind a little bit. My name is Hugh Dye. I'm from Dothan, Alabama. I attended the university in 1976. I played a lot of sports. Uh, my first few years, I uh, spent a lot of time trying to figure out what I was going to do. I came as a computer science major and ended up a marketing major. Walked on to play football there for just a short while. It didn't work out. So Hugh tried a lot of different things on campus. 
But it wasn't until his junior year, the spring of 1979, where he would try out for the cheerleading team. I tried out for cheerleader in the spring and made it to the finals, and I hurt my leg, my knee, and I made alternate with my bad leg. But at this point, it's the summer of 1979. After Anne and Segal finished their conversation in the room where it happens, Craig Cantrell, now tasked with the burden of making the mascot a reality, begins to think about who could fill these shoes. And that's when Hugh gets a phone call. So my uh, junior year, I, uh, I worked for uh, Coca-Cola in the summer. I got a call from Craig Cantrell, who at the time was an SGA. That summer, he just called. He said, hey, Hugh, we got this idea. I want to run it by you. I said, okay, what is it? He said, well, we're, you know, Auburn just got a mascot, and we were kind of thinking about doing the same thing. I said, what are your thoughts about that? I said, well, I mean, sounds good to me. That's about all I thought about it. I was like, why is he calling me? But, hey, that's okay. He said, well, um, we wanted to see if you'd be willing to try out if we were to, if that would come to fruition, fruition, would you? I was like, no, I don't do that. Nah, it was tough for me just going out for cheerleading, to be honest with you. It took a lot for me. Um, so we kind of left it at that. And about two or three weeks went by. But during that time, we made Harry call me. He'd heard about it. And they just like, Hugh, man, you really need to think about it. You really need to just kept encouraging me and kept encouraging me and all that kind of stuff. And so I got to thinking about it, and I was like, well, I don't know. Probably not going to happen anyway, but, you know, I guess I'd be interested to see what it was like. And things moved pretty quickly. By late September, tryouts were announced in the Crimson White. Here's Kathleen Kramer describing that process. We had interviews because, again, we wanted to make sure it was people who would represent the university appropriately. We also wanted to make sure they were students who were well-respected by the student body and understood that the spirit here is um, contagious and yet not anti their opponent. We, we just were kind of all about Alabama's pride rather than um, being a bad sport on the field, that kind of thing. So we had that. And then we had them put on skits. We wanted to see if they were going to be creative and using props, um, if they were athletic enough to be able to wear the suit. And while Dr. Kramer was creating the committee to judge those tryouts, a nervous Hugh Dye was doing some preparation of his own. I learned at that young age it's called pantomime, which I had no idea what that was, other than, you know, you're some guy who plays sports and all of a sudden you're going to get out in front of a bunch of people you know right after lunch, right after dinner, and you know, hopefully not embarrass yourself too much. But. And after Hugh had discovered the art of pantomime, the big night had arrived. It was September 21st, 1979. But it was going to be a barn in the field, which is where the band practiced. Um, and it was going to be right at around 6, so that the fraternities and shorties and people on campus would be through with their dinner so they could come and watch. As Hugh waits for his turn, He's a combination of excitement and nerves, but he's mostly shocked to see a particular professor as one of the judges. And they had the judges here, and one of the judges was my GBA 490 professor, Professor Thompson. Eventually, his name would be called. I didn't think I was going to be able to get anybody's attention, really. I thought, I need some blonde girls, and we got some... Uh, some pinstripe shirts and white pants on them. I figured, you know, if I can get some, some, some nice looking girls, at least I'll get some attention 
from the guys. Okay, now the girls, I don't know, but you know, I figured the guys would like it. And if they started cheering, maybe everybody would start cheering. So we pretty much mimicked Alabama going up and down the field and scoring. And so I, I can't remember what I did when they scored, but uh, apparently they liked it. And I had, I mean, I, I, I was, after about two or three minutes, I was kind of getting into it. I was like, man, God, this is fun. You're cheering, heck, I'm making a fool of myself. So I was out there for maybe six, seven minutes. I was scared. Um, I mean, you play ball and stuff like that, but then when you can't speak or... I just thought it was going to be a disaster for me, just to be honest with you. But. No, this isn't the plot to High School Musical, but it is the story of an athlete taking a risk. And like many tryout process here at the Capstone, he was about to find out if this risk paid off. And so there were 18, I think, that tried out. They announced my name. I, I, I just really kind of stood there. didn't really know what to do, to be honest with you. It didn't really hit me till later, so. Of course, I got ragged big time when I got back to the frat house. It's worth noting that once he was selected, he played a pivotal role in shaping the elephant forever. A lot of that conversation about the way he walked and acted came from Hugh's advice. He gave them a lot of feedback through this process. You know, I told him, I said, you know, I'm going to go through this whole experience, and then at the end, you know, let's just do an exit interview so that I can tell you what I think we ought to do going forward. Uh, she said, okay, that's a, oh, that's a good idea. Craig goes, yeah, let's, let's do that. But if you remember, they had a very ambitious deadline to meet for homecoming. But as time went on, it became clear that the suit wouldn't make it in time. I was disappointed, but, you know, nonetheless. So we, we, we got pretty firm numbers that it was going to be there for the bowl game. So I was pretty excited about that. The fall semester of 1979 was coming to a close in December. And after six months of planning, three rounds of design, and $2,300, the suit finally arrived. So, finals were going on, you know what that's like, and, you know, I can't remember who asked me or how it all came about. I said, Hugh, could you pick the suit up at the airport in Birmingham? In those days, you had to learn, you had to read maps. I'd never been to the airport before. So, I went, to, went there, and then uh, got to some folks... Somebody give me some information. I'm trying here to pick up a package, and I think I had a sheet of paper or something. And I was in a Mercury Bobcat. Now, if you pull up a Mercury Bobcat, you will see that the very back had a hatch, all glass. At this point, Hugh parks his Mercury Bobcat and is escorted to the back of the airport to find a giant crate. So... So what they did, they said, what kind of car you got? I told them, they said, okay, I've got to get this thing out of this box. So they uncrated it for me. It was on a, on a mannequin being held up. And I remember sitting there staring at it. It was unbelievable. I, I never seen anything like it. It was beautiful. I mean, it was... Anyway, so, so they take it out, and I, I said, I'm just going to put it on. So I did, and I started wandering a little bit through the airport. So the kids were coming around and pulling on me and stuff. I said, the guys, I've got to get me out of here. So they got me back to the back, and I took it off. I was in that suit 10 minutes. I was soaked. I got security to help me walk into the car because people were just crowding around. So I got into my car. I put the suit in first, and then I just laid the head on top of it, hit the hatch, headed home. Well, when I was driving home, 
uh, it was still daylight. And so I get all these people driving by and they're honking at me. So I got by the Ozark and I, was, I went inside to a convenience store, just got a drink, came out, and I went, oh, <laughs> no wonder people are laughing at me. So imagine this. Hugh's giant elephant head is staring straight out the back window of his Mercury Bobcat. So Hugh eventually makes it home and puts on the suit again to practice moving and walking around in it. I actually still have this picture. It's a Polaroid, which I'm sure you guys have seen a Polaroid picture, but you know, uh, it's the it's really literally the very first ever picture taken of Big Al, and it's with me and my mom. It's worth noting that the suit had major growing pains. The suit was built out of waterproof cotton material with practically no ventilation. As Hugh and the cheerleading team were preparing in New Orleans, they had to make some major adjustments. You know, five or six days later, I had to meet, we all met in Tuscaloosa to go to Sugar Bowl. So, brought it up there. and um, The interesting thing about the, the suit itself, you know, not only was it... Um, extremely difficult to, to be inside the suit because it was hot. It was heavy. It was very heavy. Um, there was the way they made the head it, I could not secure the head. And so my roommate Harry is a fix-it guy. He's one of those guys that can look at something, fix it. So we get there to the, to the hotel in, on Bourbon Street I said, Harry, I know I mentioned this to you the other day, but man, I'm not going to get this head anymore. He goes, you know, just don't worry about it. I'll fix it. Just let's do our stuff today. And we had some appearances to make and different things. And he said, uh, then, then I'll look at it tonight. I said, you know, the game's in two days, man. What are we going to do? So we get back to the room. And we're in this kind of a small room right, up, right on Bourbon Street. And he looks at it and he goes, oh. He reaches into the claws and pulls out a coat hanger. Takes the coat hanger. Sets it down. He starts taking these measurements, and he, and that's what I used to keep my head on was the coat hanger. In January first, nineteen eighty, it was game day. Piece of the puzzle, which will be solved today and tonight, as to which college football team will claim this trophy, the MacArthur Bowl, annually given to the team voted number one in the nation. Over 75,000 people attended the game in the Superdome that day. ABC was broadcasting the Sugar Bowl live from New Orleans. The mascot would have a pretty big crowd for its reveal. It was planned that the mascot would debut around the national anthem at the beginning of the game, but how do you reveal a giant elephant costume? So we decided we were going to um, bring him out some something like an egg. I mean, we don't know really what elephants are born in. <laughs> and uh, we wanted to introduce him, and so we got a great big refrigerator box and brought him out during halftime, um, thinking you know, that would be the big moment. And here's Hugh describing that process with his roommate, Harry Woodard. You remember, the one who helped fix Big Al's head with a coat hanger. So I said, well, you know, really, the, you know, we don't have any money. The university doesn't have we, we can't really build anything or whatever. I said, why don't we just uh, take like a refrigerator box? 
I said, that would be pretty easy to do. He said, I can get, I can, I can go to a warehouse there and get a refrigerator box. We just pull it, drop it over you, put paper around it, put stuff on it, pull it off, and they, and then that's it. And so that's what we did, and we 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 built the box there at the stadium, and they let us store it in a in a closet, pulled it out, put it on top of my head, all the way over. You've seen refrigerator boxes; they're pretty big. Now, it it wasn't snug, but it it was you know pretty pretty snug, and so I just walked which seemed like a mile because I couldn't take big steps. And all of a sudden, I got onto the turf and I saw the turf. We were going by people's feet was the band. So we get there and I'm saying, oh, I'm at midfield. Oh, gosh, I got 70-some thousand people. So they, they did the national anthem and they just they they just pulled it off. And all of a sudden, I was just... And I remember I kind of spun around and started doing some stuff and the band members were turning and looking see what the heck was this thing because nobody really knew and I don't even know what they said over the loudspeaker I don't know if they I, I don't know so I was in the middle of the field and cheerleaders around me we were all jumping around and then we and then so I started telling them I said let's just make our way toward the Alabama side so I was going to the Alabama side and going around and the kids started coming down and I was holding on to them and getting pictures and and it just I got to the point where I, oh, I got to get to the side went to the sideline and interacted with the cheerleaders and some of the players went over there at halftime had a picture made with me and was slapping me and stuff and, and then um, but it was it was a blur because I had so much fun I mean I cannot I mean me I, I, I would never have dreamed I'd have had fun doing it it was a blast so the kids and all that parents and along with others around the country watched Hughes debut on television here's a clip of the mascot twirling around a cheerleader and yes, the mascot did stay off Coach Bryant's field. Just moved off the line, knocked him out of there. See that uh, bringing back the elephants in the Alabama vernacular. They used to call them the red elephants. While the media was giving the mascot a lot of attention, Hugh was burning up in that suit. At halftime, I said, you know, I don't know if I can make the second half, but I'm going to give it a try. And I got through the second half, but I think I lost close to six pounds through the total, and, and I didn't weigh but 165, 170, but I lost so much water. And when everything was said and done, the undefeated Alabama Crimson Tide brought home the national championship by defeating Arkansas 24-9. to This would be Coach Bear Bryant's final national championship of his football career. Hugh and the team felt pretty good about the mascot in its debut, but student opinion was a little more mixed. In the Crimson White, some students were quoted saying, I don't think it was worth all the money spent on it, and the trunk look messed up. While others noted that it was very cute, and that it added a lot to the football team and to the university. Nonetheless, that Sugar Bowl was the only football game he would perform as Big Al, because he graduated that upcoming May. It's also worth clarifying that Big Al debuted with the 1979 football team, but the game was actually played January 1st, 1980. And while football season had ended, the elephant mascot was just getting started. Kathleen and Craig would continue to grow the mascot's image. Most importantly, picking a name. Picking a name. We started this off really just wanting to know how Big Al got his name, but no one seemed to have a great answer. But according to the Crimson White, a student vote was held in January of 1980 after the mascot has made its national debut. Two campus honoraries sponsored the naming of the mascot. 
Omicron Delta Kappa, or ODK, and the triangles. So all student and alumni were invited to submit names at tables in the Ferguson Center, Gordon Palmer, and Bidgood. So I got some of my fraternity brothers and my roommate, Harry, um, and we set up some tables. So we went to, uh, we set up at Gordon Palmer, and the reason we set up there is because just the traffic from the fraternity houses and everybody going to, to Gordon, everybody, all the freshmen had to take math classes. And so we just set up a big table there with some bowls. So people would just come up, write their name, put it in the bowl. Write their name, put it in the bowl. All proposed names were then reviewed and voted on by a committee, which consisted of Kathleen Kramer, the cheerleading team, and Melford Espy. You remember the director of campus activities who wore the red elephant mask in the 1960s. Here's Dr. Kramer remembering some of the top options. And they voted between um, Big Al, Dixie, and T-U-S-K, Tusk. With the official name of Big Al, Hugh continued his mascot duties during the basketball season. Big Al was known for shooting free throws and interrupting the opponent's huddles. So then I did basketball games. So what I would do at basketball games is I would get into the huddle of the other teams, and I'd have me some writing something down, and... The head coach of LSU, I remember him looking at me and he said a few choice cuss words to get the F out of his huddle. So, and he was pretty, a little bit boisterous, so the students loved it. They just, they loved it. Big Al's celebrity status continued to grow with event requests for weddings, birthday parties, and other community gatherings. The kids really loved it, and that's where I made my my contact and my relationship. So when the kids started liking it and all that, the parents were getting into it. They wanted to get pictures made with the parents. I used to get tons of mail, didn't know what to do with it. They ended up having to give me something over at Ferguson Center with a bigger box because I couldn't handle the mail and the kids were writing. And so that's when I knew it was going to do, do well. Once the kids, I think, really started liking it, the, 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 uh, the brothers and sisters started liking it, which means they're college age or younger. And the parents kind of flowed to the parents. And then everybody just kind of got on board with it. It was really one of those things that started with the little kids. It went all the way up. But it was never, it was never really silly. It was all about the relationship with the fans and, and being available and, uh, for them and being there for them because that was the reason I was there was for them and not myself or anybody else so I think the, the vision that, that Kathleen and Craig had was just perfect and they helped me with that Kathleen Kramer even booked Big Al a few times he came to my daughter's um, second birthday and the children were a little scared I should have waited until they were four but um, yeah no that those requests came immediately it's fun to see how that goes over that he's not just part of um, sporting events proper but he's part of the Alabama family and network we want him everywhere Hugh continued to fulfill all sorts of sporting and event requests for the Alabama community, but since this was still a student-run initiative and funds were low, Hugh also had to take on another unique responsibility, cleaning the suit. I didn't have scholarship money, so I had to pay to keep that suit clean. It's very expensive, and I wasn't a rich guy, so I spent a lot of my excess money just keeping it clean. I take it to university cleaners. Kept it, I kept it at the frat house. You know, they knew not to come in here and touch it. In that spring, Hugh passed the baton to a long line of Big Al's. Eventually, athletics brought the cost of Big Al into their budget. 
they would have multiple people share this role, and the suit would get major ventilation upgrades. And as for the students and administrators that put this together, well, they all stayed dedicated to the university. He would graduate that May of 1980 and go on to pursue a family and a successful career. Ann Paramore would successfully run for president of the College of Communication and then graduate in 1981. She still uses her event planning skills from homecoming to plan and organize events. Craig Cantrell, a junior at the time, would run for SGA vice president that March. He was unsuccessful in his election, but he still stayed involved, advocating for various student issues his senior year, like food service and campus parking. Sigil Friedman worked in a variety of positions beyond alumni and retired after 56 years at the university. And Dr. Kathleen Kramer recently retired as the Senior Associate Vice President of Student Affairs with over 30 years of administrative experience at the University of Alabama. When asked how they react now when they see Big Al, here's what they said. To see that um, one little visit with Coach Bryant turned out to be a beautiful mascot that is still going strong at Alabama is, is an awesome thing to me. I feel very pleased that the students and the alums were able to work together with the administration and come up with something this good, this lasted this long. And um, I'm so glad we have begun. Well, this is so corny, and I have said this before. I feel sort of like he's my boyfriend. Like, I want to protect his image and my baby. You know, and it's been a delight to see him uh, continue to perpetuate that class we first articulated and to be so beloved by the students and um, and to meet people who are now grown up who say, oh, I remember the first time I saw Miguel. It's been a real joy over the years to see him become an integral part of Alabama's image. I'll be honest with you, you know, when you do something like that and you you're, you're out of the you don't see it for that long and you spend so much time investing yourself in it and then you get to see it again. I can't even really explain the feeling. It's really kind of interesting. I wanted it to represent a, a, a winning tradition, uh, respect for the university, but something that the kids could relate to, but the students would be proud of. We hope you enjoyed this story about students and administrators creating a lasting legacy at the University of Alabama. This is the first episode in a series of stories about the University of Alabama. If you like this, please share our series. You can go to pluckandgritpodcast.com to submit story ideas, view pictures, and check out other episodes. We'd also like to thank a few organizations for making this podcast possible. The W.S. Hool Special Collections Library, with resources to old Corollas and Crimson White newspapers. The Paul W. Bryant Museum, for footage of Big Al in the 1980 Sugar Bowl. And a special thanks to our musicians this week. The intro you heard is Night Owl by Broke for Free. And the music you hear right now is Grace by Dana Boulay. You've been listening to Pluck and Grit. Until next time.